0: Chapter 25 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 25 Asuncion On August 2nd, we made good progress before a cold and moisture charged southerly wind. Throughout the day, we saw no signs of human life. In the evening, we passed Villafranca, once a flourishing town. We could see only one rancho on the beach. The pilot said he landed here two years back and found the population of this city consisted of two women. Thus have the banishment of the Jesuits and the wars of Lopez depopulated and ruined these once flourishing regions. From the mouth of the Paraguay to Asuncion, nearly 300 miles, there are but two settlements now that are worthy even of the name of villages, Via Piar and Vieta. We passed by many deserted ranchos on the forest-clad banks. Our pilot once found a fine tiger skin hanging up in one of these. It was difficult to say what had become of the inhabitants. The common explanation about here is that they were eaten by jaguars, for these beasts are very numerous in Paraguay and have become man-eaters since the war. They are much bolder here than in most parts of America even walking coolly into the streets of a town like Vieta occasionally, and taking off some child or woman. This night we did not cast anchor, but made fast with a hawser to a palm on the Chaco shore, for there were many sunken trees about here which our anchor might have got afoul of and so have been lost. We were close to the sandy estuary of a little riacho which the pilot said was much frequented by Indians, Further in, he told us, this stream opened out into a great deep-water lake, which he once explored in a Spanish schooner that had sailed into the Chaco to take in a cargo of hardwood. He was no less than six days sailing around this inland sea, but found no timber, jungle alone on the banks. From the center of it, no land was visible on either side, even from the top mast of the vessel, so extensive was this sheet of water. It is not marked on any of the maps, but indeed, the Chaco, even close to the river banks, is but little known. The pilots call this lake the Laguna Ojo. No marauding Indians molested us this night, but we were kept awake some time by the roaring of many jaguars in the bush. During our next day's journey, we were much astonished at seeing another very strange phenomenon in the Chaco, which also was unmarked in our maps. This was no less than an important fortified town. There, on the edge of the Paraguay, was a congregation of log houses and stores, with a backwoods just behind them, no clearing having yet been made even of the immediate forest. There was a battery, too, facing the river, with half a dozen small brass guns on it, and white tents indicating the encampment of a full battalion of troops. Off this settlement wrote at anchored two gunboats, And to our amazement, we perceived that both fort and men of war flew the Argentine and not the Paraguayan flag. All this was an exceeding puzzle to us and also to our pilot, who had never seen this military establishment before. Why, he said, when I was here last, that was a settlement of Indians. The toldaria of one of the greatest caciques of the Chaco was on that spot. It was not till we reached Asuncion that this mystery was solved. We were told that since the war the Argentine Republic as well as Paraguay laid a claim to this portion of the Chaco, and the former had thought it proper about twenty months back to establish this fortified post as a menace, I suppose, to the Indian Republic. It is called Formosa, and will, I suppose, form the nucleus of a prosperous colony in time. At present it is merely a military post, and rations are served out to the civilians daily as to the troops. Thus, vessels cannot easily victual here, as we found out on a return voyage. On the 4th of August, we sailed a great distance before a fresh south wind. We passed Via Mercedes, an important town with only one rancho that is not in ruins, and that one is uninhabited. Here, also, we saw the wreck of the old military telegraph of Lopez that connected Asuncion with Corrientes. As it was possible to tack up the Paraguay, we were only detained by calms during this part of the voyage, not by headwinds. We were detained by dead calm, or an insufficiency of wind, during the 5th, 6th, and 7th of August. Luckily, we were at anchor in an interesting portion of the river and were enabled to amuse ourselves with sport and exploration, both on the Chaco and Paraguayan shores. Arnaud, Don Juan, and myself, in the canoe, ascended a broad stream that penetrated the Chaco. On the way, we shot a lobo, a river seal, and picked up a derelict Indian canoe. After paddling several miles up this river, we found that it opened out into a broad lake surrounded by fine forests and studded with many islands of lilies and other aquatic plants, floating gardens whose sole inhabitants were gorgeous butterflies. We circumnavigated the lake, but could nowhere discover a landing place, for the country seemed to be flooded for leagues inland. We paddled up between the great trees and the intricate lianas far up into the recesses of the forest. This aspect of this wilderness was grand in the extreme. In places, the still water reflected beautifully the glorious vegetation, the evergreens with their lilac and red flowers, and the towering palms. In places, the dense growth above hid the sky, and we progressed slowly, winding among the trunks of huge trees through the inky water, along caverns of dark branches, above us the noise of the unseen parrots and monkeys, and below the ugly roar of the crocodiles. Then we burst out once more into an open glade of the forest, glowing under the sunshine, where the spread of the water would be entirely covered with the Victoria Regia, the queen of lilies, forming a fairer carpet than can be imagined in any one that has not seen the wonders of these lands. We came to a certain large tree with dark green leaves, which Don Juan told us was always the favorite of the pavos. He told us that he had never seen one of these trees on which a half a dozen or so of these birds were not perched. The pavo, both in shape and in the cackling sound it makes, is very similar to a large domestic fowl, but its plumage is something like that of a partridge. It is excellent eating. Don Juan told us that the pavo was rather a wild bird, but if you succeeded in shooting one on a tree, none of the others would fly away, but remain to be quietly killed in detail. Likewise, if one took flight and flew away, all the others would immediately follow, these birds possessing much family affection and never separating in life or death. There were six pavos on this particular tree, so here was a good opportunity of discovering whether this bird is quite so idiotic as our practical made out. We paddled up cautiously, and succeeded in bringing down the necessary first one. And, true enough, not one of the others moved, but they simply flapped their wings and looked around them in an uneasy and foolish manner, as if they thought something was not quite right, until we had secured the whole six, not a very much more sportsmanlike feat than firing into a poultry yard might be. But great was rejoicing on board when we produced this welcome addition to the larder, for salt meat had been our diet for some days. I have often read of vessels being ice-bound, but never lily-bound, and yet this was our plight while we lay at anchor during these three days of calm. Gamalotas, big and small, were floating down in thousands at this time. These got across our chains and gradually accumulated till we became the center of one great island of beautiful lilies, in leaf, in flower, and fruit. Finding that these were causing us to drag our anchor, we left off hanging over the bows, living up to the precious things. And, waxing unesthetic, commenced to ruthlessly cut them away with cutlasses and hatchets, a long and tedious process, but we had no desire to be carried away to sea by our floating island, which would soon have taken charge and dragged us off, so big was it becoming. We visited the Paraguayan shore of the river, which was here about some forty feet high, far out of reach of the highest crescente, so on it we found once more the spinous underwood, the dull-hued thorns and cacti of a waterless land, like that we see in the province of Santiago del Estero, a great contrast to the rank and glorious vegetation of the opposite Chaco with its often flooded alluvial soil. The 8th of August was ushered in by a little excitement in the shape of the ship on fire. A paraffin stove came to grief forward and caused the mischief. There was a tremendous blaze, but we soon got it under and a little damage was done. This day we killed several patos reales, royal ducks, and I succeeded in not only killing but securing a crocodile. I sent a Martini Henry bullet into one of his eyes as he lay on the bank. Even this did not immediately render the beast insensible, for he commenced to crawl into the river, but shoving the canoe up towards him, I managed to take a turn around him with a painter and we hauled him on board. He then flapped about with his huge tail in a way that threatened to break some of our legs and smash the canoe, but a few blows on the skull with a hatchet soon quieted him. It occupied me a good afternoon to skin the monster. No over-pleasant work on a sandbank in the blazing sun, for nothing can be more nauseous than the rank smell of alligator flesh. This day our thermometer registered 87 degrees in the shade, and this in midwinter, The mosquitoes were becoming insufferable, and were it not for the mosquito nets we had brought with us, and under which we used to sleep on deck at night, traveling would have been quite impossible. On the 10th of August, the south wind blew strong and enabled us to reach Asunción and complete our upward voyage. After sailing some hours, we saw far off on the Paraguayan shore blue undulating mountains once more pleasant after the level swamp and forests we had been among for the last three months. We passed by the little town of Vieta. Here was the schooner Aconcagua lying along the bank, taking on board a cargo of oranges. Two gangways connected the vessel with the shore, along which, coming and going, were two streams of jabbering, laughing, white-robed girls who brought down the golden fruit in large baskets on their heads from the orange groves on the neighboring hills, and poured them into the schooner's hold. As we sailed on, the Paraguayan shore became more hilly, swelling up into great forest-clad domes, one behind the other to the purple mountains on the horizon far inland. From the very bank of the river rose one very remarkable sugarloaf-shaped peak, covered with fine timber. This was the Cerro Lambaré, famous for the gallant defense of the Indian Cacique Lambaré against the Spaniards. The river hereabouts is still of great width, and to one looking from the deck of a vessel, the horizon up and down the stream is generally of water, as if it were an estuary. In the afternoon we beheld before us what seemed to be a considerable city, with two Brazilian ironclads and many schooners at anchor off it. We were at last at our journey's end. After having ascended the great rivers for ninety-one days, we had reached the capital of Paraguay, which is distant by water upwards of 1,300 miles from the Atlantic Ocean. Wretched as is this city of Asuncion on nearer inspection, it presents an imposing appearance from the river, for on a little promontory that juts out slightly from the ruined quays, there towers a grand palace, a haughty structure that dominates all the mean streets. Lower down, too, is a great building that is, or was, evidently the naval arsenal of an ambitious state. But all else is squalid, and in ruins, and on looking once more it is perceived that the palace is a mere wreck, with broken windows gutted as if by fire, a mere empty shell within, and without torn and pierced by many a shot, and that the ambitious-looking arsenal is deserted and falling also into ruins. For that glorious and massive palace, reminding one somewhat of the Tuileries, are now in the same pitiful condition as those imperial Tuileries actually are, it is the palace of one who also assumed imperial honors, the would-be Emperor of South America, Lopez. This and that other ambitious ruin, the arsenal, where the shot and shell and cannon were turned out, stand as relics of one of the most fearful tyrannies since Nero one of the most annihilating wars since Carthage fell. It was from this palace that the tyrant swayed the mild Paraguayans with a rod of iron, and now it stands as a monument of his despotism over the unfortunate city that he made desolate, and which, though twice as great in extent as Rosario, numbers but about 16,000 inhabitants, for half the houses are in ruins and many others deserted and tenantless. Such is the condition of the ancient capital of the great viceroyalty of La Plata. It is a melancholy place, full of the wrecks of ambitious schemes of Lopez, who certainly would have made a fine city of it in time. On the north side is a shallow bay that he intended to deepen and convert into a port, a most useful design, but now this bay is entirely covered with the beautiful Victoria Regia lilies, with leaves so large that a child can walk on them and be supported. Out in the river opposite this bay, the top masts and yards of a sunken ship are visible, another relic of the war, for the stains of battle are not quickly washed out in this land. On landing and exploring Asuncion, we were much struck by the desolation that reigned everywhere. Few men were visible in the streets, and these, for the most part, were foreigners, the crews of the Brazilian gunboats, Italian storekeepers, and others. But of barefooted, graceful walking women, there were many. The streets are unpaved, and so one sinks deep into the soft red sands in which holes full of water and running springs are frequent. In some places, banks of stones are built right across the road so as to act as dams and prevent the sand washing away with the rain and leaving deep ravines behind. Indeed, most of the more hilly streets present the appearance of the profoundly fissured beds of mountain torrents. In addition to the palace on the beach and the arsenal, there are several other public monuments constructed by the late tyrant, rising in strange contrast to their mean surroundings. All of these are more or less in ruins. Everything that Lopez planned was on the most ambitious scale but was never completed for the war burst out in the midst of these great works. There is a noble theater and a pantheon designed to be the last resting place of a long line of emperors. But no actors ever find their way to this impoverished capital, and the house of Lopez fell even before its founder was enabled to wear that imperial crown which he had commissioned a Parisian jeweler to construct for him. There is an hotel, too, which we frequented occasionally, the Hotel de Roma, a most pretentious building, though somewhat dilapidated, a palace with its doors opening on an unpaved street of sand and shards. Seeing its magnificence, I knew that this, too, must be some other monument of Lopez. On inquiry, I found that this was the case. This palace had been built by him to serve as the residence of his mother. Papa's bananas and palm trees grow in quantities about the town and somewhat relieve the monotony of its red, silent streets. The native men of Suncion seem an indolent lot, and pass their whole life in smoking. They wear white linen trousers, frequently scarlet ponchos, and are barefooted like the women. These latter, as they stalk by with their white robes and mantles, harmonize well with the ruined city around them. As they pass some unfinished yet ruined temple of Lopez, with its Grecian architecture, The resemblance of these women in costume and walk and figure to the women of ancient Greece irresistibly strikes the traveler. Their white robes are worn in the same fashion. Theirs is the same grace of movement. But they are always smoking cigars, and Grecian dames, I believe, did not resemble them at this. A well-known writer has pointed out how much an interior at Asuncion resembles one at Pompeii in nearly every respect. There is the same central courtyard with its fountains, galleries, and painted walls. And the girl who walks silently into the patio to present you with a maté and bombilla is the impersonation of the Pompeian slave girl. While she waits for the empty bombilla, she stands before you motionless, with her bare white feet gleaming on the tessellated floor. Her white robe is fastened up on one shoulder, revealing the opposite breast her faultlessly molded arms are bare. They are dropped meekly in front of her, with the hands clasped. You could take her for some fair statue, just stepped down from its niche. You return the Bombia, and with supple, silent tread she goes out without a word. Asuncion is as much a city of the dead, and of memories only, as are the ruined cities of Greece and Rome. For all her palaces, though not two decades old, are deserted, grass-grown, and wrecked. All the civilization and commercial wealth that the Jesuits and the tyrants after them did create, notwithstanding their faulty policy, are things of the past, and her brave manhood is no more, slaughtered in an unworthy cause, while women and a new and effeminate bastard youth alone represent the gallant race." The only dissipation or excitement that this capital offers is its tramway. This is a very unique thing in the way of tramways. It runs but for a short distance, from a certain drinking place on the beach to another drinking place near the railway station. Its only object seems to be to take people from one of these bars to the other. The trains run at such very long intervals, every two days I believe, that the carriage of railway passengers, to and fro, is the least of its functions. In the evening, a band of three unmusical but noisy musicians is stationed in the front part of the tram. This attracts all the members of the Jeunesse d'Oré of Asuncion, who fill the car and, silently smoking the while, travel backwards and forwards from the one public house to the other, a stoppage of ten minutes being allowed at each terminus for refreshments the Paraguayans, be it told, being the reverse of teetotalers. In an hour, you can make about six passages to and fro in this manner. The first time I traveled on this tramway, I was much amused by an incident which is highly characteristic of the way things are done in Asuncion. The manager of the tramway happened to be one of the passengers. On the car drawing up opposite the café near the station, this gentleman dismounted entered and called for some potable or other. The waiter happened to be engaged in an interesting game of cards with the proprietor of the place, and did not respond with proper waiter-like alacrity to the cry for drinks, but continued dealing the cards, whereupon the irate tramway manager called out in a stentorian voice to the patron. Let that drink be brought to me at once, in my blankety-blankety-blankety, if this ever happens again, I'll take up the tram rails and lay them down up the other street to Don Pedro's Café and ruin you. When the tramway, traveling from bar to bar, loses its excitement, no other form of amusement is left one to fall back on save the public balls, which bear a strong resemblance to the dignity balls of the West Indies. Most of the streets of Asuncion are altogether unlighted at night, and wherever a lantern with its solitary light hangs outside a door, it indicates that there is a public bylay within. End of chapter 25